Welcome to The Flower Path. This is a kind of bonus episode. If you're listeners to Strange Familiars, you heard this episode back in 2020. This was the Christmas episode I recorded with Brother Richard. I'm going to be repackaging some of my talks I did with Brother Richard over at Strange Familiars for The Flower Path because I think it's appropriate to our content here. I'll just release them as bonus episodes. If you're not familiar with Brother Richard, he's a Capuchin Franciscan priest friar from Ireland, probably our most popular guest over there at Strange Familiars. Brother Richard has recently released a book. It's called Still Points. It's on meditation and mindfulness. It is available now in the U.S. as an audiobook or as an e-book, but the hardback will be published in January. I think it's available everywhere else. You can get it from your local bookstore or wherever you purchase your books. And we have a new show with Brother Richard coming on Strange Familiars this week. I did want to give a little update. I'm running behind on The Flowered Path because I'm doing research on a show that covers about eight years of someone's encounters with some pretty amazing things. I don't want to give it away just yet. But it's based on her diary. It's not a saint. It's kind of a mystic. But I think it fits in well with the kind of things we talk about here on The Flowered Path. The problem is it's eight years of a diary and every entry almost is relative to what we're talking about. And I want to do a really deep dive on this subject. So it's taking me a long time to do the research and put it together. I've decided I'll probably publish a show on Another Saint while I'm getting together the research on the long show. That subject will probably be presented over the course of two or three shows, I think. It'll have to be broken up. It's so much information. I was trying to get it done and have that be the next show. I don't think that's going to happen. I think I'm going to have to intersperse some other saints in between those shows. But it has put me behind on the research. I do all the research and presentation for The Flower Path myself. I try not to just read a Wikipedia page or something like that on the saint. I try to do my own research and try to get as much information as I can So each show takes me a good bit of time to put together. I appreciate you being patient with me. I did want to release something for Christmas. So here we have this repackaged show from Strange Familiars from 2020. Brother Richard and I discuss the three magi, Mary Magdalene, the Holy Grail, the origins of Christmas, and more. It's a long show. Strange Familiars is a paranormal podcast. We get into some talk on some paranormal subject as well, but I think you will enjoy it. It's definitely not too far off the path of things we talk about here on The Flowered Path. Please be patient with me. There will be new Flowered Path as soon as I can get the shows ready. I did release the first Flowered Path patron show over on our Patreon, so Flowered Path patrons did get a show last week. If you want to hear that and support what I'm doing with The Flowered Path, you can go to patreon.com slash Path. All right, let's go ahead and get into this long talk I had with Brother Richard in 2020. I guess before the questions that other people submitted, I always have this fascination with what we call here Old Christmas, mm-hmm. which is uh, basically the it's it's just the date Christmas was celebrated. What, before, oh, I, I forget the, was it before the Gregorian calendar? I forget. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gregorian calendar, yeah, okay. yeah, that's the, we're, in, we're 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 with at the moment, yeah. And some people, you know, some traditions held on to it and remembered it, and and other people just, you know, when it when you know December twenty fifth kind of became the official Christmas date, it kind of faded from some other traditions. You know, does the church or do you, you know, individually acknowledge old Christmas in any ways or any sort of celebration or, or feast associated with that? You're, you're talking about the 6th of January, are you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so for, for us, that's that's the, the, the epiphany. So um, it, it's sort of the, 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 the 12th night. Um, it's it's the, 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 uh, the marker of the, the end of the Christmas period proper as mm-hmm. such. And there were lots of traditions around it. Um, decorations in, in the house were supposed to be taken down on 12th night. It was considered very bad luck to leave them up in the house after after the 12th. It was also in Ireland known as Nolignaman in, in Gaelic, which was women's Christmas or little Christmas. And the idea there was that the women having worked extremely hard and uh, to to, um, uh, to cook and, and to provide for all the festivities, this was the day when they were allowed to, to rest. And it was up to the men to cook and to clean on that day, um, a kind of a sort of a, a reversal um, Though, though, uh, as most women will, will tell you, they immediately noticed that the, the men got twelve days and they got one, which is the <laughs> usual the usual uh, proportion, sadly, in in, in terms of, of honouring. But it was honoured, and it was also a day in which um, women very often made pilgrimages together to to holy wells or to holy trees, etc. And as to what transpired there, I don't know. I'm <laughs> uh, uh, not being being part of of that gender, but it was it was considered a, a very special and a very sacred time. Um, within the Christian calendar, it is the uh, the day in which we would commemorate the the baptism of Christ, uh, the miracle of the uh, wedding feast at Cana, and the visit of the the the, the Magi, the three wise men. Um, so, in places where the the Christmas crib or crash was was uh, was placed, that was the day on which the three wise men arrived uh, and were, were were placed into the crib if they hadn't been placed there already. So I think we'll be talking about the Magi later. So, so there's there's a lot a lot about the Magi and, and and their significance, but Epiphany comes from the Greek Epiphanoia, which means a showing forth or a revealing, and the, the idea was that that while Christmas was the, the the revelation to the shepherds and to the people of of Israel, the Epiphany was the showing forth of the Christ to the whole world. Uh, so we have the first of his public signs um, as an adult, the, the uh, turning of the water into wine at Cana. We have the um, the first uh, kind of revelation of the Trinity with the baptism of Christ in the, in the waters of the Jordan, in which 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 was also seen as a rendering of all water as a holy and sacred and healing element from then on, and was even seen as a sort of a casting out of any sort of negative spirits that would have been in water, so that water was considered a, a very sacred element from that moment. And then the third uh, point, then, as I say, was the Magi. So you have the the uh, in inverted commas the pagan peoples, as they would have been seen in the old tr- traditions, coming and making their their adoration of of the Christ as well, and that their faiths and their traditions had pointed them towards the coming of of the Christ. So that was the old date in the Orthodox Christian tradition in the Eastern tradition. That would still be the the the, the main day on which the, the birth of Christ is also celebrated on, on that day. So all of those mysteries would have been celebrated together. So they kind of held on to the the old while they while they moved on to the the newer calendar of the Gregorian, which was also made to um, to illustrate, I suppose, the uh, the, the the sort of um, the use of of the whole year as a kind of a catechetical tool or teaching tool. 
So the reason we choose 25th of December is for two reasons. Number one is uh, the nearness to the winter solstice uh, um, and, and the great uh, Roman pagan feast of Sol Invictus, which was the, the, the victorious sun. So the sun, the sun as in S-U-N, uh, died, was seen to die in the pagan mysteries on the shortest day of the year. Uh, and then there were a number of days of mourning for the sun. Uh, and then by the 25th, of course, the, the sun is beginning to appear again over the horizon. And so the, the sun is seen to be to be victorious. And that was a, one of the most important feasts in um, the classical uh, um, classical religions. And so when Christianity came about, it was seen that, that this feast uh, presaged or, or um, prefigured uh, the coming of the sun, S-O-N, uh, in, in that sense. Uh, and so the, the feast of Christmas uh, was began to be celebrated quite publicly from about the 300s round about that, that, that uh, festival, that date. Do they refer to it as Old Christmas Day there as well? Uh, little Christmas. Little Christmas, okay. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, Little Christmas, yeah, yeah. And a lot of a lot of big celebration there for that yeah folklorically speaking like uh, just i've noticed just in you know mm. folklore and collecting stories and stuff folk songs and so forth there's almost a mystical quality assigned to old old christmas like yeah. like for those who remembered it you know like like the, okay we have christmas but there's also old christmas as well which yeah yeah it's kind of an echo in the background yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely and it was seen as a very very liminal space as i say first of all you have the, you had the reversal of the genders going on mm-hmm. you had the uh, the visits to to the old places um the wells and the and the, and the trees and and those kind of sacred places often monastic ruins were often visited on those days as well they were kind of pilgrimages and pattern days um you have the arrival of these uh, mystics, these three great mystics, the three, the three magi, and so it was. It was one of those times uh, in in which um, uh, I suppose a thin time in in that sense when the dead were also very often commemorated on the Epiphany, and it would have I suppose linked in to to the kind of um, the ending of the solstice, the turning towards the light again. All of those kind of things uh, would it would still echo within within that that old Christmas day. So uh, we'll get to some of the questions that people submitted now. This says uh, this is from Taylor. He said, for both mm-hmm. Tim and Brother Richard, what are some scary Christmas stories that have impressed <laughs> or shocked you, if any? And we'll mm-hmm. start with that one. For me, it's the, I mean, you guys can go back and listen to the Belsnickel episode. The fact that these wild men are so closely mm-hmm. associated with the holidays and, again, my chapters on... Uh, Wild Man and Christmas and, and Where the Footprints End and so forth. I think I've talked about that at some length. Very, very interesting that these sort of uh, all over Europe and uh, in America in those communities like like the Pennsylvania Dutch community here, there's, there's people that, that you know have these uh, folkloric ties mm. to Europe. These folkloric wild men are just associated with Christmas so closely. Very, very uh, interesting to me. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 extraordinary, um, and and the, the the sort of bringing bringing together the, the the those various wild wild man and 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 uh, uh, kind of punishing figures, I suppose, and and then bringing them into the company of Saint Nicholas of Santa Claus as well is 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 fascinating. You know, the idea that they are in some way his his kind of retinue. As he as he goes around, um, they've been scrubbed from the record somewhat uh, um, officially. But but uh, yeah, the, the idea of of Christmas as a kind of a wild time um, 
as, as a time of, of wildness and encountering the wild, both in humanity and in in the, the kind of uh, spirits of the land or the spirits of the other is is, is quite a, a present one. Within within the, the, the Irish tradition, there are lots of stories of encounters, particularly with the, the kind of the fairy world uh, around about Christmas, um, and also the lament uh, very often of the fairies that they were sort of on the outside of these celebrations, that they couldn't um, partake of it or be, oh, or be part that of it. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the, that, that. That was quite often, often done. And in fact, it, it, they were one of the times in which it was very easy to see them. They had all of these kind of rituals, um, particularly with regard to to the clergy. Uh, it was supposed to to be um, on Christmas Eve that if you managed to get um, a hold of of a saddle that had been used uh, by a priest and put your foot in the stirrup. Uh, while hold, putting your other foot on fairy ground, you would be able to see the fairies. And for um, those those kind of clergy who were considered to be holier, uh, if they made a loop or a ring with their arm um, touching their hip and you looked through it uh, towards a fairy mound, you were supposed to be able to see the fairies on Christmas Eve as well. So there was this idea of, of that... that uh, while, you know, we have silent night and all is peaceful and all is quiet... Um, there was this idea that, that there was a great upheaval, that Christmas brings a great upheaval, a great shift, a great movement um, with regard to the spiritual world. And even within the very earliest monastic texts, one work that's known as the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, uh, there's a wonderful story about St. Anthony of the Desert, who's one of the very, very early monastic saints. And he meets uh, a satyr uh, in the desert, <clears throat> a wild man, and he's described as, as one, of, one of the classical satyrs. Uh, who tells him that he also needs to have the gospel preached to him uh, and that they have been waiting um, for, the, for the revelation to come to them as well. And so the, the uh, St. Anthony sits down and, and, and teaches him, you know, uh, tells him the story of the Christ and the coming of the Christ. Um, so it, it's, a th- it's a sort of a, a theme that, that's present uh, from, the, from the very beginning wow, uh, all yeah. the way through. Yeah. You'll find that in the, the very early uh, early chapters of the, the sayings of the Desert Fathers. And I, I, what's lovely about it is St. Anthony is on his way somewhere else and kind of meets this guy in the middle of the desert who asks him to stop. And he's kind of, um, you know, he, he's not uh, in any way disturbed by the fact that he's meeting a satyr in the middle of the desert. He's just annoyed that he can't get on to his appointment. So it's... it's uh, it's one of those things, you know, again, the, the, the old fairy idea of, um, you know, you'll be stopped on the road and not to uh, not to pass that which is in need uh, is, is, a, is a very important Christmas Christmas point. I suppose if you're looking for a scary Christmas story, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether it's scary or not. I, I encountered myself some years ago a house that, that uh, a young couple had, had bought um, they were friends of one of the other friars and they were having a little bit of issue with one of their, their youngest children who kept telling them that there was a, a man in a brown coat who was walking around the house and was very annoyed that they had moved in. So they had, you know, they, they kind of took it with a little bit of uh, salt at, at, at the start and, um, you know, thought it was kind of cute and that the child had a bit of an imaginary friend going on or whatever. And as the days went on, uh, the, the child continued to talk about the man in the brown coat. He was getting progressively more annoyed as they moved furniture and kind of painted places and restored the place. So um, it was beginning to creep the mother out a little bit, uh, in, in fact. And when the child wasn't there, she, she had kind of feelings that maybe, you know, she was sort of being, being watched or, or those kind of feelings of other presences. So on one occasion then, 
they had moved a very large, um, we, we would call it a tall boy, a kind of a large chest of drawers, um, one of those old kind of dresser drawers. Uh, she had moved that into, into a place on, on a landing uh, outside the child's bedroom. And the child kept telling them as they were moving it that the old man did not want the chest of drawers there. Um, so at that stage, the parents got kind of annoyed and gave out to the child and sent her to bed and said, you know, there's enough of that now. We're, we're, we're finished. You know, the man in the brown coat is gone. He's not to be there anymore. Anyway, about two, three o'clock in the morning, this was coming towards Christmas, uh, the child um, came into the room and said the man in the brown coat was outside on the landing and wanted to talk to them. And he was very annoyed as to where they had put his chest of drawers. So... Uh, <laughs> The parents came out anyway and uh, told the child to go back to bed. And the mother said, for the last time, there is no such thing as the man in the brown coat. And at that moment, the chest of drawers fell over. Oh. Um, so at that point, they decided maybe they needed to seek a little bit of assistance. And they reached out to their friend, who was one of the, the, the monks, one of the friars. And he got in touch with me and the two of us went out to see them. Uh, to see the house and to bless the house and while we were there it was there was a palpable presence in in the house like it was just it didn't reject us but we we knew it it knew we were there there was a very strong sense of kind of oppression so we chatted to the little girl and she was fine she was chatting away all six years of age of her and she was saying he's very nice but he he, he doesn't like us being here and it's his house so we asked for his name and she said oh i never i, I never asked his name uh, so she went off and came back a little bit later and she said she'd asked his name and she gave us his name. So we asked the parents, did the name mean anything to, anything to them? It meant nothing to them. Um, so she said, okay. So we continued with the, the rituals and, and, and prayers and the oppression kind of left. And we, we said, look, if there's any more problems, call us back. But we think he's gone. So um, about two or three days later, the father in the house was putting the rubbish out, uh, taking the garbage out. Um, and uh, he met one of the old neighbours on the street. And the old man, being a good old man, had, had noticed these two monks arriving to the house some days before and was very curious as to what was going on. So he was asking him what was going on. And the younger man who was in the house you know, didn't particularly want to go into the fact that about his daughter or the, the man in the brown coat or anything. So he said to him, he said, the young man said to the old man, um, you know, have you had anything strange in your house? And he said, oh, yeah, we all have. Uh, he said, these houses were built by a man back in the 1920s or 30s. But he said, he's never really left. He's always been around. Uh, and lots of the houses have had problems with him. Hmm. So the young man was totally taken aback by this. This was not on the, you know, the, the, the realtor had not spoken about this as, as, they'd, as they'd bought their house. Uh, so he asked the old man what was the name of the man who had bought, who had built the houses, and the name he was given back was the name that the little girl had produced um, a couple of nights before. So that was just that was that was just coming up to Christmas, and um, what was beautiful about it was the neighbours all began to call into them to tell them that all of the manifestations in their houses had also stopped from the time that we had we had visited and offered the, the prayers for the for the man who had obviously felt very possessive of these houses he had built and wanted furniture and decor to remain the same. So um, that was a, a lovely moment of, and I'd certainly say it to your listeners as well, if they have, if they have younger children who are talking about invisible friends, um, to really listen to them uh, because there, there's uh, often 
they are just what we think they are in terms of children's imaginations. But we know the power of the imagination and it can certainly be used as, as ways of connecting with, with other things. We, we have a fashion here at the moment. I don't know if it's, if it's reached the States, but it's certainly a fashion at the moment where children are invited to put up fairy doors in their rooms or in their houses or in their gardens and to sort of name a fairy and to to call on the fairy to come in. And it's, you know, these beautiful, pretty little doors are sold to stick to your wall or to, to um, uh, stick to the to the uh, to the garden wall. And I'm I'm waiting for the wave of calls we will get um, <laughs> as as uh, you know they're they're making effectively little shrines right. uh, to to genius loci uh, of some description and um, I've no doubt that some of them will will move in um, you know or at least manifest uh, so um, yeah when parents say to me that they're they're picking these things up for their kids I kind of smile away and say okay well enjoy. Um, <laughs> And, and we'll see how it goes, uh, because I think, what it, what it, particularly when a child names something and calls it in, you know, it it, it, it can arrive. It can yeah. come in with it. So, yeah. Yeah. I was one of my favorite examples is there's a, a very popular uh, Bigfoot museum in Georgia, and uh, they put up this museum and filled it with Bigfoot artifacts and pictures of Bigfoot, and it's a place <laughs> where, where people come to share their stories about Bigfoot. And uh, they even have a very large piece of presumed Bigfoot scat under glass there. So, you oh, know, lovely. You, you know, <laughs> and uh, then suddenly they're getting tons of sightings around this. And it's like, sure. yeah, you, sure. you, you want Bigfoot? You, you just build a temple to Bigfoot, essentially. They call it in. There's a, a paranormal researcher in, in the UK um, called Mike Halliwell. And he has written a beautiful book called Invisi Kids. Uh, which is specifically on the invisible friend uh, phenomena. And uh, he has related it hugely to the Fae, particularly, um, as, a, as, as a kind of a working hypothesis. Um, he, he has designated um, invisible friends as what he calls quasi-corporeal companions, <laughs> um, which is a lovely, a lovely phrase. Yeah, but absolutely. Particularly around things like, um, you know, uh, them being invisible and intangible and yet able to affect matter at times mm -hmm. uh and it's, it's it, it is fascinating we had one case i remember um i didn't deal with it personally it was another friar dealt with it but where there was a child who had, there was a long corridor and she used to roll the ball along the corridor to her friend who would then roll it back Ooh, yeah. um so <laughs> when the mother spotted this happening she she uh, quickly called somebody in to ask um as, in as politely a way as possible for them to kind of uh, move on and, and leave leave her friend leave her daughter alone so yeah what's so special about hero bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas hero bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs five to eleven grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. The tradition of uh, Christmas ghost stories is... Mm. Very, very strong and, and has faded over, you know, I think in, you know, I, 
I tend to blame Coca-Cola and, and uh, <laughs> you know, the sort of uh, saccharining, the saccharine nature of, of modern Christmas. Yeah. It, uh, it was a very strong tradition of Christmas ghost stories going back hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, it didn't start with Dickens in any means. No, no, no. And very strong in Ireland. Um, the, the idea of, you know, sitting around the fire, particularly on the, 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 the nights of Christmas, Christmas not just being one night, but 12 nights, uh, and, and each night, kind of the story is getting more and more, um, you know, crazy about the, the the fairies and the ghosts and all of that kind of stuff that was that was on the land. And th- there was even the the tradition of what was called the Christmas invitation, which was it was considered a very very great blessing for someone to die uh, over the twelve nights of Christmas. Uh, and um, again, right up until quite recently here in Ireland, there would have been the tra- what they called the, the the tradition of reading the death. In other words, that um, uh, they would tell the story of the death specifically looking for the signs that had come before it or around it so that people would sort of learn how to know when, when death was near and how to know when um, when to prepare oneself for death particularly. So, uh, yeah, uh, considered a very great blessing to die over that time and that those those stories would, would get told over and over and over uh, within, within families. And most families, most old Irish families would have... Um, particular um, sort of uh, sign givers uh, that would appear from the animal or bird world you know various families were associated with foxes um, my own my own mother's family was associated with the blackbird particularly um, and to this day we have had really interesting manifestations of, of blackbirds just before um, the, the the women of the family have have passed on uh, where, where they would uh, just be around and, and you know be, be very um, present and coming into houses and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was it was a time for the ghosts. It was a time for spirits. And it was, the understanding was as well that it was a time for mercy for the spirits. So particularly for those that were trapped or were caught or were condemned to kind of wander, wander the world, if they could be invited in to Christmas celebrations, um, then uh, their, their sufferings would be alleviated and they would even be able to pass on into, into, into the more uh, heavenly um, realms. Uh, and so over Christmas Eve, particularly, there was always the, the idea that um, a candle would uh, would be set in the window and the doors would be left unlocked that night and very often bread uh, and um, milk would be left on the tables, um, in some places bread and beer. Uh, and that the idea there was that if the Holy Family, um, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, were on their journey, they could call in, but also the ancestors could call in at any time. Uh, and partake of food and drink and know that they were welcome. Uh, so uh, it wasn't just the stories, it was the understanding that they would call, that they would be present. That is a beautiful tradition. Mm. And it kind of uh, segues into Taylor's next question, asking about Christmas rituals of the future or rituals we'd like to see come back into vogue. That's an absolutely beautiful one I, I would uh, like to see implemented. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the Christmas welcome. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the idea of of, of hospitality, not just to um uh, to to our family and our friends, but also to those who have gone before. Um, and there was that idea of a kind of a telescoping of events. You know, that that idea that, that when you entered into sacred time, into thin time, eternity and chronological time become one in in that moment, and so all of the generations are present. Um, and, and it becomes a way of kind of uh, renewing our our acquaintance with those who have. Who have gone before? Um, they'd often be invited to bless the land or bless the house or to to make sure that the house was protected for the coming the coming year. 
in terms of other other rituals that that, that maybe have gone i mean they're they're often present but we don't know why we're doing them so even the the idea of of um, bringing in holly and ivy into the house um that was a very very clear protection of the house against uh, evil spirits or fairy and uh, the holly bough was was considered to be a very sacred plant uh, going back as far as the celtic times but even even uh, under the christian uh, dispensation as well it was seen as um one of the the plants that that had been used within the crown of thorns um and so uh, a male and female holly tree were often planted at the main entrance to a garden or to a house uh, as a way of keeping keeping um, evil spirits at bay and so branches of it will be brought in and placed over the door and over the chimney. Uh, and we still do that to decorate, but we forget why it was actually why it was actually done. It was to, to protect the house at a time when the spirits would be out and about and moving so that only the good ones could come in because um, they couldn't pass uh, a holly bough or a holly branch at that stage. Wow. I, I have chills. We have two holly trees planted out front. Uh, well, there you go. It was always considered to be a very good sign if you were moving house. If you came to the house and discovered that that uh, holly trees had been planted, um, it was a sign of sign of blessing of a house. Oh, wonderful! In, in fact, um, uh, Tolkien even referred to the uh, to the tradition uh, with regard to holly when in the Lord of the Rings they arrive at the famous um, the doors into the mines of Moria. They discover two huge holly trees uh, that had been planted there of old as a as a way of keeping evil things at bay, but also. Um, as a way of, of uh, announcing an alliance between uh, the dwarves and the elves, I think it was at that stage. But it, it goes back to that to that ancient idea that um, the trees were, were markers for memory and were also markers of, they, they brought particular energies with them. Whereas ivy <clears throat> was seen as a very blessed plant because it's, it's um, in the old language of, of plants, it was considered to be a, a healing plant and a plant that indicated humility. Uh, and when the again the old Irish legends around the the Christmas time uh, when uh, the Holy Family were fleeing into Egypt, they they were supposed to have hidden in a cave, and ivy grew over the front of the cave to hide them from the soldiers. And so ivy was considered to be a very blessed plant to have in the in the house as well at that time. I think the Christmas welcome might hold uh, to to kind of step back and and touch on mm. that again might hold particular significance this year when, when maybe we can't see as many of our relatives as we'd like mm-hmm. under this. And uh, maybe that would be a way to sort of acknowledge mm-hmm. our, our relatives yeah. past and, and present. Yeah, it's, 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 it really is a beautiful idea. And, and um, the idea of kind of setting out food. Now, the only thing I would just say to anybody who's going to do it, food that was left out for, for the holy ones or for the dead was never consumed by the living then afterwards. Yes. That, uh, it was always distributed out to the land so that the animals could take it or it could go back into the, into the land in whatever way it needed to. It was considered to be, to, to be un, untouchable by, mm-hmm. by, by humans after that. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was it. The latch was left off the door. The, the, the lamp was left in the window. Um, and to this day, in many of the churches uh, in Ireland, when it comes to um, Christmas Eve, there'll often be a special lamp or candle lit in the church uh, for those who can't make it, those who can't make it home. Uh, we're, we're a country of emigrants. And so it, it wasn't until very recently, you know, um, that people would kind of come home again for holidays or for Christmases they couldn't afford to and travel was too difficult. So Lamps would often be lit in, in houses um, or uh, in, in the windows of houses and churches as a reminder of those of the parish who had gone elsewhere 
Um, so yeah, it, it might be a, a nice thing to do in, in these days when maybe people can't travel or don't want to break lockdowns or don't want to, to bring um, the possibility of difficulty on, on older family members, etc., sure. who, who might be feeling isolated at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you kind of hit on this with the Sol Invictus mm. stuff, but uh, Alexander was uh, wondering about the pagan origins of Christmas. Again, I don't know mm. if I'm going to expand on that any further. And uh, well, I, I suppose it's. I, I think it's. It's always dangerous to, to be, to become kind of syncretistic about these things, as though as though you're sort of saying it's 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 all one thing. Because I think that takes away maybe from the individual inspiration of the different the different traditions as well. But I mean. I suppose as human beings, there is a very simple longing for light over darkness. You know, um, we feel safer in the day, uh, by, by and large, and uh, particularly when you're dealing with um, an agricultural population in the in the northern hemisphere. Um, the, the importance of light um, uh, for even just simply for food production becomes absolutely essential. Uh, so. All of the various traditions have their festivals of light. I, I think tonight, as far as I know, is the first night of Hanukkah this year. I could be wrong on that, but I think it's think it's tonight. You know, you've D- D- Diwali in the in the, in the uh, Hindu tradition, um, and and all of the various um, uh, fire and light ceremonies that happen throughout the throughout the the, the year. I think what Christianity did um, when it met with the the pagan celebrations or the older classical celebrations was what it did in most places, which was to say, well, anyone who is seeking for the truth um, is seeking for the divine, whether they know it or not. And so anything that's good within those celebrations was preserved and continued. So uh, certainly there were elements of the older pagan uh, celebrations that were sublimated or you know, received by, by the Christian tradition and, and kind of given other significances or deeper significances uh, or newer significances, perhaps to say, maybe not deeper, but newer, certainly. And as I say, the the, uh, the great festival in, in, in Rome, the, the Saturnalian festival of the, 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 the victory of the sun um, was one that Christianity then took on and uh, said, yes, you were absolutely right to celebrate this and that this was a prophecy or a prefigurement of what actually happened in within the within the Christian tradition? Uh, that was the way it was viewed within the tradition, anyway. So, I think there there is there is a, a deep deep richness uh, to these traditions. That when we scratch the surface, they go deeper and deeper and deeper, and eventually they just become essentially human. The the, the way in which we deal with uh, the natural world and the other and the divine and all of those things is is certainly partly a journey from darkness to light and from light back into into darkness again and this kind of cyclic nature of the year one of the oldest ways of of seeing this envisioned i suppose is within within the christian tradition we have the practice of what's known as the advent wreath um which is a, a wreath of evergreen leaves that's brought into the church uh, when we begin the advent season the four weeks of of preparation for christmas and on each of the four sundays then um a candle is lit around the wreath and there's all kinds of symbolism associated with it. Um, the evergreen leaves are supposed to represent the, the evergreen divine, the life of the, the, the divine life um, that lies beneath the surface, even in the midst of dark or, or desolate winter days. Um, the emptiness of this, the center of the wreath uh, is supposed to indicate, you know, d- divine emptiness, the, the inability of humanity to, to comprehend the mystery of God. 
And then the, the lighting of the four candles indicates the, the sort of the 4,000 years of longing from the moment that the Messiah is prophesied to the moment that the Messiah arrives. So you have all of the, these kind of elements of, of the growing of light, um, the, the, the circling of the ages, the evergreen idea. Um, but all of those traditions uh, are present within within the pagan tra- tradition as well, um, You know, going as far back as the, the Yule log and the idea of... Um, burning the wood from last year so as to liberate uh, life into the land again, to bring life out of the land again. So I, I think when um, the, the, the various um, Christian missionaries and saints, etc., found these, these, uh, these things, they, they were very well able to see within them the possibility of a deeper illumination even of their own mystery. So I think there was back and forth over the the hundreds of years that have, have celebrated. We've kind of reinformed and reseeded each other along the way. Did you study as part of your religious education? Do you study pre Christian religions? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's considered essential. Um, so the the formal studies as such that we would do uh, apart from the in-house kind of apprenticeship and, and 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 working within our own specifically Franciscan tradition, we would also all of us do kind of college level degrees in in um, philosophy and, and theology. So I spent about four years doing a degree in pure philosophy and then four years doing a degree in 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 theology, um, also taking other courses along the way. But in both the, the philosophy degrees and the theology degrees, part of it was um, a full kind of uh, very full, very deep study of um, not just the Christian tradition, but all of the other major traditions and uh, going back into um, what were known as the, the pre-philosophical religions, so that would have been back to the kind of um, uh, animist, naturist, uh, pagan uh, traditions that were present. Um, I, I also personally have made a fairly solid study of of Buddhism and Taoism as well, um, uh, and uh, a, a little bit, a little bit uh, in in terms of Judaism. But it was part and parcel of the courses that you would have to cover all of these these traditions as well, and and cover them from a very respectful point of view of recognizing that all of these traditions represent the reaching out of humanity for meaning, you know, for ultimate meaning. Um, obviously, I come from the Christian tradition and within that the Catholic tradition and and, and that's uh, where I am and, and, and what I am and how I've chosen to be. But if that tradition is lived fully, it should be lived in, in the fullest sense of the word Catholic, which means universal, the recognition of, of truth wherever it's found. All right, so let's move on to uh, Jen's question. She wants to talk about Mary Magdalene and okay, very good. mysticism surrounding uh, Mary Magdalene. Okay, where do we start? Um, so I suppose starting from, from the historical, uh, scriptural point of view, from that point of view, we know very little about Mary, Mary Magdalene other than um, she's named as one of the female disciples of, of Christ. She is Mary of Magdala, um, and uh, I think as far as we know now, Magdala was was a small town um, which was famous for a tower, uh, a Roman tower. So Mary is often known as Mary of the Tower, um, or Mary the Tower, even, uh, indicating her kind of strength and courage. Um, she is uh, conflated and even confused with two other uh, women within within the gospel narrative. Sometimes, Mary of Bethany, who's the the sister of um, Lazarus and uh, Martha, um, 
and also the woman who is uh, traditionally known as the woman caught in adultery. Uh, a name is never actually given to, the, to, to that lady. Um, uh, so over time, and particularly through the medieval pageant play tradition, these three Marys were, were seen as one, which led, unfortunately, to the idea of Mary Magdalene as being a sort of a, um, a fallen woman or a repentant woman or that, that, that kind of idea. Whereas what we actually see in the scriptures is that Mary is named as a disciple. Um, and the only other information we're given is that we're told that Christ cast seven demons from her. Uh, and that's it. That's all that we're told. After that, we see her as an extremely faithful disciple, a uh, companion of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's present at the crucifixion and she is uh, gifted as being not the first witness to the resurrection, but the first public witness to the resurrection. It was a very ancient tradition in Christianity that the reason Christ isn't at the tomb when Mary, uh, Mary of Magdala arrives first is that the first place he went after rising was to visit his mother to, uh, I suppose, console her after her having gone through the suffering of seeing him seeing him die. That's known as the one of the unknown mysteries. Um, so then Mary of Magdala becomes the first public uh, witness and is given the commission to go and to tell the disciples what she has seen. And since that day, she has received the title uh, in, in the Christian tradition of the Apostle to the Apostles. Uh, the word apostle means someone who is sent. So she is sent to the apostles to give the mystery, to give the, the proclamation of the mystery of the resurrection. After that, we simply have traditions and legends. Uh, and the, the traditions and legends say that uh, Mary, along with uh, Lazarus and Martha, this goes back to the conflation of her with Mary of Bethany, and she may have been the same person, we just don't know, that they were exiled as part of the persecution of uh, the, the early Christians. They wanted to to get rid of Lazarus particularly because he was seen as huge evidence of uh, the power of Christ, he having been raised from the dead, and that they were eventually end up in the south of France where they proclaim uh, Christianity and uh, work various miracles. Uh, Martha um, slays a dragon, uh, Lazarus sets up a kind of a, a church or a monastery, and Mary of Magdala, we are told, withdraws to the um, the mountains, to the desert, uh, to be a, a person of, of contemplation and prayer. Uh, and that's where I, I think maybe the strange familiars people uh, become very interested because we're told that she, she becomes effectively a kind of a, um, an image of, um, of, the, of the wild, of wild nature. It said that, that she lived out in the desert for so long that the clothes that she had fell apart. Um, and so she was gifted with the grace of, depending on the translation you read, her hair becoming so long that it covered her body or that her body grew hair. And so she's this kind of wild woman of, of prayer and mysticism and, and miracles. We're told that daily she was raised up uh, into the sky uh, above the desert um, by angels so that she could uh, hear the sacred music of the spheres, the, the, the background divine music of all of creation. Um, so effectively, she's seen as, as the, the sort of um, having reached the acme of, of the contemplative journey uh, and to this day is considered a, um, a model of, of anyone who, who wants to follow the, the sort of the hermit way or the contemplative way again. More echoes for, for strange familiars there. Yes. 
her bones and uh, remains and some of her hair are still kept to this day in Provence in France and there's huge devotion to her there. Um, she also then begins to reappear in the sort of the, 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 the more Gnostic tradition that begins to arise really in uh, the, the writings of the early 1900s or so. Um, and this is a sort of a, a reappraisal of her and this is where we begin to get the... Um, the sort of the Da Vinci Code, Mary Magdalene, who appears as uh, possibly the wife of Christ, who appears as um, the carrier of, of his bloodline. There's there's all of, of those kind of theories that are out there. Now, my problem in speaking about those is that for those who believe in those Magdalene mysteries, um, well, I'm speaking as a Catholic and I'm speaking as a Catholic monk. So anything I say after this could very easily be, be dismissed. <laughs> um, so all I'm simply going to say is if that is the Mary Magdalene that you are interested in, then I would suggest that you just go and study the history, like seek the truth. And, you know, if if uh, if that is is helpful to you, that's that's as much as I can say on it. What I would what I would say about her is that she is one of the most important saints there is, uh, one of the most important uh, female figures in, at, at the start of Christianity. Certainly, uh, her life and reputation um, were impugned uh, by male uh, teachers along the way who wanted to to render her a kind of a I sort of a sacred prostitute idea, I suppose, or a reformed prostitute, which there is no evidence that she was ever anything like that in, in the scriptures. Um, and instead, if we look at the early church, she's just held up as an extraordinary example of virtue and grace and prayer and miracle working and, um, and someone who is to be emulated um, by, by everyone, male and, male and female alike. So yeah, I'd, I'd I'd say that's that's Mary of Magdala from from the mystical point of view. Um, as an archetype, she continues to be one of the great strong um, archetypes of what we would call uh, the divine feminine or the, or the 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 feminine in God, often seen within the the early uh, with, with late Jewish tradition and early Christian tradition as um, uh, Hachma or, or wisdom, Hagia Sophia in 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 the Greek. Um, and that idea, again, that uh, there are two paths to the divine. Um, there is the path of what they call the conversi, those who convert in life along the way and reform their their way of living. And the oblati, those who live a life of innocence and purity and truth uh, from the beginning. Interestingly, it was often said that a monastery only worked properly if it had an equal number of conversi and oblati. Um, you needed to have people who knew the world as well as those who, who, had, who had walked away from it That's uh, to keep it going. That's, that's really, very <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good balance. Uh, um, Alison is chiming in from the background and asking, which one are you? <laughs> <laughs> both. Both. <laughs> in, in, that, that's what I'd say. Uh, particularly particularly uh, depending on, on what day of the week you meet me on. Um, but, but it's, it's, uh, it's definitely... Um, uh, the, again, like with all archetypes, we find all of the archetypes in ourselves, uh, depending on on the circumstances we're in. But Mary of Magdala would have been seen as the archetype of the conversi, mm -hmm. um, whereas um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been seen as the archetype of the oblati uh, in, in that sense. So the fact that they both appear at the foot of the cross and they are both the witnesses to the death and, and the resurrection of Jesus is seen as, as the sort of fulfillment of both sides, that these are the two paths and that everybody can walk 
walk those two paths. There's always room in that sense. There you go. I will uh, step back and just talk about the idea. Pre um, uh, Da Vinci Code, mm. I became interested in, in, in uh, these ideas and sure. and very you know cause I did a ton of research and, and all these books and, and everything. My the balloon was kind of deflated for me when uh, my bandmate. You know, and I'm talking. You know, these people they claim to have like the bloodline of Christ, and I'm, yeah. I'm getting into all this stuff. And then he he simply showed me the family tree of some yeah. of these, these royals, <clears throat> and uh, th- this was sort of the the you know it's it's a fascinating story. But as as far as me going any deeper, this is sort of the end of it. When you look at the family trees of these royals, and they'll go back, and they you know it's got as far as people could remember at the time, you know, their father, Mm. their grandfather, maybe their grandfather's grandfather. Beyond that, it goes to pagan gods. Zeus, Zeus is often in the tree and, and, uh, hero, great heroes, you know, Hercules and Perseus and the, and goes back from there. And then it's figures from the Bible. Yeah. uh, Beyond that. So once you see these family trees that people put so much stock in, you go, Oh yeah. They just weren't really good at doing family trees back then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think there, there was certainly, um, a a sense in which, uh, they they were trying to reconcile both the pagan and the Christian, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there was always that question for the early Christians as to, um, you know, these figures of, of myth and legend, where did they fit in? Um, so you even have them stretching it towards, um, you know, one, one of the, (laughs) The, the, the famous interpretations of the Nephilim was was that they were the the, the, the classical heroes, you know, the Hercules right. and all of these kind of people were, were these, um, because how else could they have been? How else could they have existed? But I think for me, one of the things that always makes me slightly suspect is that once you get into a situation where you are saying, by virtue of blood or genetic descent, someone is more special than another person. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, the hackles on the back of my neck rise, and, and I think you, you begin to be very wary because you're, you're effectively into, um, you know, a kind of a, a hierarchy of humanity based purely on, on genetic descent. Um, and we, we all know where that goes. Yeah. You know, it becomes yeah. it becomes racism, it becomes eugenics, it mm-hmm. becomes Nazism, it becomes all of those sort of things. And while while it would be lovely to think that there is you know a pure uh, bloodline of uh, divine bloodline all the way through, the actual message of Christianity in its fundamental sense is, is that we are all one family with the divine, you know, and that that's that was what the incarnation was to do was to make us brothers and sisters to 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 the divine. So I, I think sometimes it can be people wanting to be more special. Or to, or to or to to sort of be able to set themselves up over others. Now that happens within organized religion as well, just from the simple kind of hierarchy. There's a very old story. One of our old um, masters used to say, used to teach, where he said, um, "There were two apples on a branch, and they're looking down at all of humanity." And one apple says to the other, "You know, those human beings, all they do is fight and kill and fight and kill, and eventually they're going to be gone. And then finally, we apples will take over the world." <laughs> Um, and the other apple says, yes, but which of us will be in charge, the red ones or the green ones? Um, you know, in, in other words, it's it's part and parcel of, of the, the kind of um, fallen nature that, 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 that exists, that, that um, we, we constantly want to exert dominance over each other. And I think sometimes these kind of legends um, can be used to sort of give a, a reason or a philosophy uh, to be able to do that. And we need to be very careful of that, whether it's 
the grail quest, the Da Vinci Code, or even just broad mainstream religion in itself. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the grail, Barbara asks about the <clears throat> mystic tradition of the grail within Christianity. Sure. Okay. Well, for, first of all, the question I, I respond to whenever anybody asks me about the grail is, which grail? Um, because there are many grails. Um, I suppose the the one most traditionally understood is 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 uh, you know, the idea of the, the cup of the Last Supper. Um, so, uh, for those who 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 may not know, um, within Christianity, in all its various forms, one of the most important um, moments in the life of Christ is the Last Supper that he has with his disciples before he he, he dies, at which. He offers uh, the, the, the sacrifice of Passover, the Jewish Passover sacrifice. Um, within that meal, within that ritual meal, there is a cup known as the cup of thanksgiving. Uh, and that cup was very, very important. It was often, the physical cup itself was often handed down through, through generations um, and was considered something very precious. So one could see it, it this, as being something that would have been passed down amongst the, the disciples afterwards. In time, that became known as the Graal or the Grail, which which basically means a hollow vessel. And uh, that cup, um, you know, uh, within legend anyway, uh, was something that was passed down amongst the disciples. It was in the keeping of St. Peter uh, and um, was with him in, in Rome, and he used it to celebrate Eucharist regularly. To this day, there is actually an indication of that in the Catholic Mass, because in in uh, the Eucharistic prayers that are used, the first Eucharistic prayer that's known as the Roman canon, it goes back, uh, elements of it go back to the second century. When it comes to the, the, the moment where the priest takes up the chalice to, to, to offer the chalice, in all of the other prayers, he just simply says he took the cup. But in the Roman ca canon, he says he took this cup. Uh, and that is considered to, to be an indication that, that um, uh, in the words of Peter, he was showing the the, the 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 disciples the the rest of the disciples the the actual cup of christ in, in in that moment now what becomes of that cup afterwards that's a matter of mixtures of history and legend but the story is uh, that it came down eventually to um the uh, the deacon lawrence saint saint lawrence patron saint of bakers uh, and uh, Lawrence, uh, as a martyr, um, took it to uh, to Spain, um, and it was hidden with the Christians in Spain during uh, an outbreak of persecution in Rome. And that chalice still exists to this day. You can see it if you want to Google uh, at any stage um, the, the, the Holy Chalice of Valencia. Um, you'll see a very strange Baroque-looking looking, looking uh, uh, chalice. But if you look closely... Uh, the, the, the grail part of it is simply a, a little um, stone drinking bowl, uh, which is the cup of, of, the, of the chalice itself. Um, and that is considered to be uh, the, the chalice that came from, from Peter and that was the drinking cup. Now, scientists have looked at it and they have said that it is definitely a first century drinking vessel from the Middle East. That's as much as they can say. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, who knows? Uh, but it is exposed regularly in the cathedral in Valencia as um, as a good candidate for the Grail. Um, put it put it like that. The, the second Grail is is the Arthurian Grail, the, the sort of the Arthurian legend, uh, and that is a cup that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, it's often confused with the Grail of the Last Supper as well. But the cup of Joseph of Arimathea was supposed to be in a cup that was used to collect some of the drops of blood that fell from from Christ when he was on the cross. 
and so it was considered a great symbol of of um, the redemption, um, as one could imagine. Once we leave the gospel narratives, Joseph Arimathea becomes a man of great legend. He's supposed to have been um, a very wealthy man. He was supposed to have made his money through tin mining. Um, he is supposed to have gone to Cornwall and to, to the UK, uh, which obviously would have been part of the Roman Empire at the time anyway, um, parts of Britain, uh, to obtain tin. And when the persecution of the, the church in, in uh, Jerusalem began to take place, he is supposed to have fled to, um, to, to, to England and to eventually have ended up in Glastonbury. And uh, if you ever have the chance to get to Glastonbury, I would thoroughly encourage it. I've been there there twice now on, on pilgrimage myself. It's an extraordinary place and a real place where all of the various traditions come together and where you can meet literally anything and anyone. Um, it's an extraordinary place of, of, for, for gathering of people there. But the belief there is that um, Joseph used the grail uh, to bless the waters of, um, of Glastonbury. And you can still go to what's known as the Chalice Well Gardens there and see the uh, uh, the, 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 the well uh, and the spring of water that Joseph blessed, along with planting his staff on Glastonbury Hill, which then became the famous Glastonbury Thorn Tree, um, a healing tree. There, there, are, there are a number of them around that are taken from cuttings of it. Sadly, the one on Glastonbury Hill, I think, was actually cut down by vandals um, some years ago. Oh, that's um, heartbreaking. Yeah, it was it was it was terrible. And uh, but thankfully, the tree, the tree itself um, continues because cuttings are, are taken from it regularly in order to to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one still growing within the grounds of, of Glastonbury Abbey, which is also supposed to be the resting place of, of King Arthur as well. So you have all of this mishmash of, of biblical and Arthurian uh, legend there. But I think um, the question that was asked was about the grail in, in Christian mysticism. And from that point of view, um, the grail is you. Uh, you are the grail. Um, so the grail is, is, is a vessel that is hollowed out so as to contain uh, the lifeblood of Christ. And in that sense, through prayer, through fasting, contemplation, various mystical exercises, the idea is that you become the grail, that every human being is called to become the grail, to become the vessel through which divinity is poured out into the world. And from that point of view, then, um, that's where we begin to approach the Grail as revealed to the the, the, the knights of the, the Round Table, etc., on their on their quest. Uh, this is the Grail that is revealed, and they see it at different times, but it always withdraws into the distance. They have to keep going. They have to purify themselves. Um, the knights who fall to temptation along the way don't get to see it, whereas Percival, the knight who's considered to be the, the purest of the pure, uh, he's the one who eventually receives the vision of the Grail. Not even Arthur is, is good enough to, to see the vision. Uh, of it. And again, there was a lot of Christian codification in those legends as well. We read them now just as stories, but they were actually um, stories of, of uh, meant to, to kind of um, catechize, and, and uh, there's a lot of theology hidden in them. So the Grail resides in the, the chapel of the, the Fisher King, um, and the Fisher King is effectively Christ, um, the one who is the Fisher of men. Uh, so he's the, the king who is constantly um, on the point of death, but never actually dies, again, transcending both life and death. And the one who has, um, the way you find him is to follow his bloody footprints. Huh. Uh, so a, a, again, the, 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 the footprints appear, but also the idea of um, uh, the wounded feet of, of Christ. So uh, it's the call to be the, um, 
to be the knight, to be the warrior, to be someone who's pure, but eventually the only way into the chapel to be able to receive from the grail, um, Percival receives communion from the grail itself, is to, to give up the, the sword, to give up the way of violence, to give up the way of, of, um, of fighting. And from an allegorical point of view, the knight discovers that all the way along he has actually been fighting himself. Um, that all of these various beasts and trolls and dragons and, and monsters and giants are actually parts of himself that have to be given away uh, so that he can become um, the, the grail, the vessel. Um, again, it's also an indication of um, the, the, the feminine uh, energies within, uh, within the divine. Um, so space, emptiness, um, uh, the idea of, and, and that's not space to be filled or to be... Um, uh, to be taken over or to be uh, controlled, um, but it's the idea of, of uh, divine spaciousness, a, a spaciousness that is full, an emptiness without absence, um, the idea of moving into mystery, moving into the place beyond name and beyond uh, beyond concept uh, to arrive at a place of, of spiritual union and silence and stillness. So you have this wonderful moment within the Arthurian um, legends where uh, Percival goes on but eventually becomes a hermit himself and his entire life is spent in just the contemplation of the of the grail um, so yeah it's it's a it's a whole map of the spiritual life when we when we look at it from that point of view and it begins of course and um, that the whole grail quest begins with the wild man it begins with Merlin um, who's the one who, who tells them that in order to heal the land they must seek the grail so that the round table is constructed and even Arthur's birth is brought about so that the grail might be found um, oh, wow. so as to bring reconciliation to the to the the, the, the the broken land or the warring land and in that sense it's the idea that um, only when we become open to the divine mysteries do we actually arrive at a place of peace within ourselves the land being the you know the the, the torn up mind and heart of, of every human being so Merlin steps in as this wonderful instrument of, of the other or of the divine to actually indicate that this is possible um, because he himself is considered to be both human and elemental. Um, he's a, um, uh, what do they call it again, a cambion, um, which is uh, the result of a union between uh, an incubus and, and a woman. Um, but he was rescued from his uh, uh, demonic father um, because the moment he was born, he was baptized. Um, so in that moment, he's baptized by his master, Blaze, who is both a priest and a magician and set on the path of, of kind of sacred knowledge. And part of that, of course, is his experience of moving into the woodlands to learn the, the old powers of shape-shifting and, and the kind of shamanic initiation, etc., that would be part and parcel of that. So it, again, it's, it's in story form, an indication of um, the transformation of, of the, the bestial uh, into uh, intellect and from intellect then into spirit. It's the idea of um, the land being, an being a, a sort of a as above so below idea, you know, that within the microcosm of the human being is written the healing of the macrocosm. Um, and there's also the idea of the uh, us, us effectively realizing that the only way we, we receive the grail is to become the grail. John and Nay, we're going to kind of combine their questions because uh, they, they, okay. both, they both mention angels. Nay mentions okay. the th three wise men. 
and mm-hmm. we'll just kind of weave this together as the general. So everyone is familiar. I don't know if everyone, but I think most people should be familiar with, with the nativity scenes that people put out at sure. Christmas. And mm-hmm. you have the three wise men, and of course you have Mary and Joseph and, and mm-hmm. uh, the baby Jesus, and uh, often there are angels in, present as sure. well. Yeah. What would they like to know about angels? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the question about angels, I think is, I mean, that could be, you know, 10 or 15 shows on, on, on its own. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we'll just take it in the form of, uh, you know, the, that Christmas and particularly the, the nativity scenes. Like, is the idea that they that there were literal supernatural beings there, you know, at the birth yes. of Christ? Yeah, yes, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think the other thing we need to, to understand is that angel, the word angel refers um, to the job that a particular spirit has. It, it, it's not the name of the kind of spirit it is. Oh. So in, in, in Greek, yeah, in Greek, angelos just means messenger. So a spirit who is given a divine message uh, to, to, um, uh, to bring to, to humankind, um, th- that, that spirit by virtue of the job becomes an angel. So uh, the, the spirits themselves have their own uh, individual um, eternal divine names that, that, are, that are given to them. And so an archangel, a high angel, is someone who has a very important message. Um, And then we can begin to divide the angels up into the kind of, the sort of the hierarchy of angels that was known, um, which is the the idea of the nine choirs. Um, Nothing to do with singing, um, but the idea of of nine divisions uh, of of angels ranging from uh, the lowest angels whose jobs are to basically one step above the elemental spirits, uh, they're there for the guidance of, of um, uh, the sort of the material universe, etc. So you have angels, then you have archangels, then depending on the, the, the hierarchy you choose, to, the different different mystics and saints put it in different ways. But the nine choirs are effectively angels, archangels, uh, virtues, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, cherubim and seraphim, uh, going from the, the bottom to the top. Uh, when you reach the seraphim, you're, you're dealing with... Um, extraordinary uh, beings whose, whose entire nature is considered to be divine fire and light. Um, so it's love as fire and light, whereas the cherubim are intellect and will. And so all of these these kind of powers are, are present within the, uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, the divine presence of, of angels. So when we begin to talk about them present within the nativity story, uh, I think it's very clear from from the scriptures that the scriptures anyway are saying yes angels were present and they spoke and uh, beginning with the annunciation to mary um through the archangel gabriel who's the the, the messenger par excellence appears in the old testament the new testament etc whenever there's a, a very strong divine message to be given and then moving to the angels who appear to the shepherds and who announce peace and reconciliation the presence of the angelic um orders in the nativity though is very interesting because uh, in the Old Testament, the angels appear as higher than humankind. They are they are directing, they are punishing, they are ordering. Uh, uh, you know the, the, the humankind or, or the prophets, and even when prophets sort of bow down before the angels, that they are you know that's kind of accepted. Whereas from the New Testament on, the angels appear as uh, as equals uh, to human beings, different but equal. There's a wonderful moment in the New Testament where uh, the Apostle John tries to bow down to an angel and he's immediately told, no, 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 stand up. I'm just a ser- I'm a servant just like you are. Um, so uh, the incarnation is this lovely moment of, of 
of healing and renewing humankind so that humankind can, can stand up and be part once again of this great uh, union of, of uh, the spiritual world with the physical, the material, with the, with the angelic, etc. So in that sense, the angels are considered to be messengers of, of, of peace, uh, messengers of reconciliation, and, and those who, who sort of guide uh, humankind into closer and closer union with the, with the divine mysteries of the incarnation itself. So, I mean, as you say, we could easily do 15, 20 shows uh, mm-hmm. with the angels. We haven't even mentioned the Anafim, who are angels who appear as wheels or orbs. Um, we could talk about them some other time, if you like. But uh, that's certainly where, where, uh, where they would figure within the, um, the nativity story anyway. You know, the sort of, uh, I don't know if it's modern or quasi-modern representation of angels as, you know, robed, winged things. Yeah. You know, if you, if you do any sort of digging, you, you come to, this is a, a symbol. You know, this is... Absolutely. Y- yeah. Absolutely. Uh, um, that's been known a wonderful... To, I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead, yeah. No, no, that's been known to the to the laity as, as a symbol, like say in like looking at Renaissance paintings, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, I think very much so, and particularly the 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 cute little cherubs and, mm-hmm. and cherubs and putti and all of those those kind of of, of artistic figures. Um, yeah, that, that, that's about as far away from an angel as you can actually get. Um, what you're dealing with, in fact, is is a non-corporeal uh, spirit who who has um, the power, should they will, to take on any um, aspect or manifestation. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his um, science fiction trilogy, his adult science fiction trilogy, which includes a lot of angels within it, has this wonderful moment when um, the angels are preparing to meet the new Adam and Eve of a particular planet. Um, and what's interesting in it is that they're trying to decide how they will appear to these people so as not to frighten them. Um, and they go through all the kinds of shapes, you know, the the, the bull heads and eagle faced and, uh, you know, flaming wings and appearing as fire and light and all of those. Kinds. And eventually they decide on we'll just appear like 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 they look themselves so they won't be frightened. Mm-hmm. What. Lewis goes on to talk about, though, is this idea that the higher up the spiritual hierarchy you go, the more real the being is. Um, and I think this is a really important thing for people dealing with, with ghosts or spirits or whatever to, to understand. We see the spirit as insubstantial because it can move through walls or it fades away or it disappears. But what Lewis is saying is that actually we are the ones who are insubstantial. Um, and the spirit is actually more real and moves through us as though we would move through fog. And so that's why messages, etc., that come from them can be sort of out of time or not in sync completely, uh, because they're, they're sort of having to, to really concentrate uh, to appear to us or to tune into us in a more material way, in a kind of a slower way than they are used to operating at. I think it's a fascinating theory, the, the, the idea that, that uh, the only truly real thing that exists in and of itself, in that it does not need anything else in order to exist, is the divine, is God, is God uh, in, in God's self. So once we begin to move down into the angelic hierarchies, which are above us in the sense that they are more spiritual than physical, they are far bigger than anything that we have ever encountered, and they have to condense themselves in order to appear to us or to or to to uh, to move in us, and he says himself that that's why the angels uh, prefer speaking in our unconscious or in our dreams rather than having to to appear, uh, because it's it's a lot of work to appear to us physically. 
That's really interesting. I struggle a lot, in, and I get more into it in Volume 2, Where the Footprints End, with the idea mm. of, and I think Patrick Harper probably does a, a much better job in, in demonic reality than, than I do, mm. in addressing the, the idea that, that things can be ephemeral, in a sense, you know, and, yeah. and, but also physical, you know, and, sure. and able to, yeah. to, to leave footprints in the, in the, you know, speaking of Bigfoot, to leave hair behind, mm-hmm. but also be, you know, and it's, it's a very difficult concept, I think, uh, you know, and here I've been writing about it for years and it's, I, it's difficult for me to wrap my head around, you know? Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of, of, um, uh, wonderful, um, monuments and places around the world that include, you know, uh, angels having left footprints. Um, the, the, the greatest shrine uh, in honor of the Archangel Michael, who would be considered the, the, the greatest of the, of the angels, uh, his name, Michael, means the one who is like God or who is nearest to God. Um, one of the most important shrines to him is, is Monte Gargano in, in Italy. Um, and it's a cave. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a full cathedral, basilica, um, that, that exists in a cave underground. And the story is that a young shepherd um, following, I think, sheep or cattle that, that got lost uh, went into the cave and this apparition of, of the archangel took place and the archangel asked him to have a church built in the cave. Um, and he <laughs> very reasonably said to the archangel, nobody is going to believe me and why would anybody build a church in a cave? And so, in order to show that 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 he he was actually present, the 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 archangel is supposed to have stepped forward and placed his foot onto onto stone, and um, lo and behold, the footprint is is there to this day, burned into the into the rock, um, the the rock having kind of melted around his his, his foot. So I think the idea that um, these beings, uh, if we if we want to even call them that. Um, can step in and out of our physical reality and have physical impact is something that's present in all of the traditions and all of the faiths all the way, all the way back. Whether that's the ghost of your granny who, who tips you on the shoulder and tells you, no, not to cross the road um, and saves you from a car accident, or the Archangel Michael, or for that matter, you know, um, the Buddha or the Blessed Virgin or whoever it might be who appears in these in these apparitions, um, and has a physical impact. I think we're being told again and again that whether we like it or not, the the, the, the corporeal and the non-corporeal um, are two sides of the same coin. Uh, one of our old teachers used to say uh, when, when, when teaching around this, you know, you yourself are a non-corporeal consciousness affecting corporeal reality just by, by sitting there, you know, t- taking up a pencil in your hand and drawing what what the, the image that is present in your in your mind in that moment so uh you know it's 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 more a matter of scale than a matter of us having to say there is a reality different to our own it's just where we are on the scale i think that makes it difficult for us to understand uh, what's happening around us above and below the way i visualize it in volume two of where the footprint mm-hmm. then is as a i told people to take a strip of paper and write uh you know, spiritual or ethereal, whatever, however you want to, want to, and and physical, right? You know, ethereal, spiritual, whatever, on one side of it, sure. Uh, physical on the other, and then twist it into a, a Moebius strip. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and then, if you run your finger along, as if you were walking on that strip, you'll find you have to walk the entire surface of that, and you will walk mm-hmm. across the the ethereal and back to the physical before you make the loop again. 
Uh, sure. That's the yeah. the best way I can explain it. You know, as as far as giving someone a model to sort of uh, to, to to work with that. Yeah. There, there, there's there's a wonderful story. Um, I wish I could remember the book now offhand. I'll, I'll try and find it for you. But it, it was he was an anthropologist who visited a um, Tibetan monastery um, before the before the Chinese annexation of Tibet. Uh, and while he was there doing his his studies, he he, he had you know been invited by the the abbot to, to stay in the monastery and to to um, observe the day to day life of the monks. Uh, he was doing his kind of work away. Um, but on one occasion, while the monks were in in some kind of liturgy or or, or um, a moment of of, of prayer, um, a, a drunk man bro- just broke in, came in through the doors and was making noise and disturbing things. And he wondered how they would deal with it. And he said, by and large, the monks just ignored it and kept going until um, the man's uh, disruption became so big that it was it was threatening to to kind of disrupt all of the, the, the service that was going on. So he said at that point, one monk, elderly monk, detached himself uh, from the crowd, came over to the man um, and began to, to chant. And as he chanted, the anthropologist saw clearly um, a spot of light appear above the monk's head that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, one of the kind of um, more sort of fierce deities or, 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 or demons uh, appeared um, and frightened the drunk man into complete silence, and he ran out. Huh. Uh, and he was fascinated seeing this. So he was trying to construct all kinds of theories as to how this could have happened. He said the monk just finished his prayer and went back and the liturgy went on. Nobody else moved. Nobody blinked that this had happened. And afterwards, he asked to be received by the abbot. And uh, they were going through uh, his his uh, his studies. And he said he had to ask the question. So he said, when that happened, he said, I saw this this. Um, uh, creature, this this uh, demon or dragon appear, and he said it frightened the the drunk man. And he said the abbot said yes. And he said, well, I've I've come up with a few theories around it. He said, was it that the chant and the droning was sort of um, hypnotism, and it hypnotized me into seeing, uh, you know, this kind of of um, hallucination, uh, or or was it in fact that the the prayer had some sort of ability to to call some kind of spirit or being. And, and and we saw that, or or was it in fact that there was some sort of a projection that happened uh, from the fears of the drunk man seeing the monk coming towards him, and the abbot smiled and said yes, <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think that's one of the things that we we forget about when we're when we're dealing with these things is that very often it's it's both and mm-hmm. rather than either or. Um, so if if for the for the strange familiar audience if it's if it's bigfoot who leaves his footprints and appears to eat food or go through your garbage or whatever it might be but also disappears and cannot be shot while people struggle to to find a reason behind that i think the older minds and the older traditions be they christian or buddhist or hindu or native american or whatever, would have no problem with saying of course it's real it, it's just real in a way that we aren't Right, um, and I think that's that's the way we we have to deal with these things. Well, let's move on to uh, the three wise men, and uh, mm-hmm. particularly interested in. Uh, I, I think often people wonder why they're called the three magi. Sure, sure. Well, um, it, it it comes from the again the Greek uh, in which the New Testament was originally written. Um, they were referred to as as uh, magus or magus. 
um, which uh, for, for the people at the time would have been a very clear indication as to where they came from, that they came from um, the, the uh, further, further east and were probably part of the Zoroastrian uh, faith, uh, which to this day exists by and large, I think, in modern-day Iran, uh, what would have been Persia uh, previously. It's a monotheistic faith. Um, Zoroaster was the, the prophet who, who, who founded it. And uh, not, not huge to this day in terms of numbers, but it, but it still exists. Uh, probably the most famous Zoroastrian that anybody would know uh, listening in um, would have been uh, Freddie Mercury, the, the singer, uh, the head singer of Queen. He was a, a Zoroastrian um, and came from a Zoroastrian family somewhat persecuted now because of um, they being a minor religion in a a very Islamic world, but Mm -hmm. but they they still exist and and they're still there. The Magi or or, or Magi were known for uh, the practice of alchemy, um, the practice of of, uh, various forms of divination magic, but above all else, astrology. Um, and in those days, astronomy and astrology were one and the same thing. It was, it was, uh, you know, they, they did not divide until very, very much later. And so these three uh, representatives uh, seem to have, have um, by what they had observed and by the divination that they had, they had, um, they had made, they, they had recognised that whatever was appearing in the heavens was an indication that uh, a prophecy was being fulfilled and a king was being born and they came to do him homage. They're often referred to as well as the three kings. Now, they're never mentioned in the Gospels as as kings. That goes back to a prophecy in the Psalms that says that the kings of Sheba, Seba and Tarshish will come and will offer their treasures. And so the... uh, the early Christian writers um, saw the, the Magi being the fulfilment of this of this prophecy. In later medieval tradition, uh, they're seen as three uh, people who come from three different areas. Uh, so you'll often see them depicted as a young man, a middle-aged man, and an old man, indicating that that uh, we can come to Christ at any age, um, and that age is no um, no barrier to wisdom, um, and youth is no barrier to to revelation. Uh, they'll also often be, be depicted as uh, an Asian person, a black person and a white person. And that's supposed to be the indication that, uh, again, the epiphany is a revelation to all peoples of all places and all times. We actually have an icon here in the monastery that shows uh, one of the Magi as a Celt. So the Irish even got in under the, <laughs> under the Magi uh, um, label. But uh, no, they, they would have been, um, I suppose, wise people, teachers, um, traveling uh, magicians as well. I mean, the word magic and, and uh, magician comes from magus, mm-hmm. magi, uh, master. Um, but they would have been seen as, as masters of esoteric wisdom as well. Um, the gifts they bring are very important um, because they indicate who Christ is. So um, one brings gold, which is an indication of royalty. Um, and uh, Jesus' own bloodline through Mary is is the, the Davidic uh, line back to the, the kings of, of Israel. Uh, they bring frankincense, which is an offering to the divine or to the spiritual world. Uh, and they bring myrrh, which was an ointment used uh, to cool the gums of teething babies um, and to cool the breasts of breastfeeding uh, women uh, when the breasts were inflamed. So it was a very practical thing to bring to, to a, a birth. Um, but it was also used to anoint the bodies of the dead. 
And so it's seen as a prophecy of the tomb, that the Christ is born to die in, in, in that sense. Uh, the names of the Magi appear from uh, apocryphal gospel tradition, um, so not within the canon itself, but, but uh, within fairly uh, early traditions as well as Gaspar, Melchior and Balthazar. Uh, and uh, their bones, the relics of the Magi, uh, can be venerated in Cologne Cathedral in Germany. And it's a huge, big, long story as to how they got there. But but that's uh, that's where they are to this day. The shrine of the of the Magi um, is there. Uh, and if you want a connection between the Magi and and the fairy people or the little people, uh, there's a wonderful connection that most people don't know of, uh, which is in the earliest iconography of the Magi, and uh, because they come from the east and and they're Zoroasters, they they wore um, what was called the Phrygian cap, uh, which is a pointed hat but with the point bent down forwards, fa facing out over the face. And that is the cap um, that is seen on, uh, very often seen on gnomes, and particularly on the Smurfs. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was considered a cap um, that was uh, a designation of, of somebody who was a teacher uh, and someone who knew the mysteries, uh, magical mysteries as well. So in that moment, we have the, um, whether it was a conjunction or a celestial light, um, the way the star is described, I, I often think that it's far more orb-like than, than star-like. Um, it, it seems to, to, to wait for them and move and bring them to the place where they, where they need to go. Um, so uh, I think there's more, there's more than just a simple celestial alignment going on. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, the, that's the, the Magi to this day. Is there uh, any indication of their lives after the, nativ the nativity? Yeah, there's, there's, there's all kinds of legends and stories um, uh, that they became, uh, they, they sort of brought the, the, the news of, of the, um, the birth back to their particular um, uh, places and countries uh, and that they prepared for the coming of the the apostles and disciples so that they were ready their their people were ready to receive the faith now that's all legendary we mm -hmm. we know nothing of uh, historically of what happens after they they sort of leave the stage uh, and are, are warned by an angel again to go back a different way uh, because herod wants to to use them to find out where jesus is so uh, again it's it's also the the idea that that this incarnation this messiah who's being born is not being born just for the Jewish people, but it's being born for all people. And so um, even um, the, 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 the pagans, in inverted commas, received the revelation uh, from the very beginning. And that was extremely important for the attitude of Christianity towards the pagan traditions in the beginning as well, because uh, it was felt that, that if the revelation from the very beginning had already been offered to the pagans and that these people, without the benefit of the scriptures or the Jewish tradition, were able to find Christ, uh, then it was possible that in their wisdom and in their teachings and in their tradition, the seed of Christ was, was present. So the early fathers spoke of what they called the Logios Spermatikoi, which was the seeds of the divine word. And they said that these are present in the hearts of every people, believer and unbeliever alike. And it's wherever a human being intends or looks towards the good, the compassionate, the kind, um, that these are the seeds planted by by the divine word, by the Logos, so as to um, invite uh, eventual belief and eventual communion. And one of the most important things was not to disturb the seeds. So simply because I want you to be like me, and I think I've got 
the answers, whoever I am, um, the warning was always to go very, very gently, lest you crush the seeds that the divine is, has planted so that these people will come to the fullness of truth in the fullness of time. I think that's a beautiful lesson that often gets lost. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we'll skip Steve's little uh, questions for us. We'll come back to them and we'll move uh, sure. to Chad's questions, which are a little okay. deeper here. He says, uh, okay. in what ways can I include St. Francis's teachings into my life? Where's a good place to start? Um, wow. Well, if he's looking for, for, for reading material or, or books, um, I, I would say, you know, there's this huge biographies and, and, uh, um, very erudite studies of, of Francis and the early and the early um, the early followers, but I would suggest him there, there, there's two books that have stood the test of time. The first is G.K. Chesterton wrote a beautiful biography of Saint Francis. It's very Chestertonian, as you would expect. There's lots of of puns and and, and wit all the way through, but it's it's well worth reading. Um, the other is by a more contemporary follower of Saint Francis, uh, a friar by the name of Marie Bodo who wrote a beautiful poetic reflection on the life of Francis and his teachings called The Journey and the Dream. I'd start with the two of those uh, in, in terms of, of basic basic understanding of his life and his teachings. Francis, by the way, is very associated with Christmas because it was St. Francis who began the custom of the Christmas crib, of the manger scene. Oh. Um, yeah, he, he, he um, began that custom in 1223 in a little town called Greccio, um, where he set up uh, a life-size cave and brought in an ox and a donkey and um, had people um, uh, pose as the, the various figures so as to make the gospel uh, story come alive again for them. And a very old custom because of that, going right the way back to Francis, was that the straw that was used in the manger was collected up afterwards and they discovered that any sick animals that lay on the straw or were fed the straw uh, recovered. And to this day, in Ireland, uh, anyway, and, and in many other places, Italy particularly, um, once the, the Christmas Mass is over, there is a, a melee of people who run to the, the manger scene to get the, the blessed straw. Um, and some of that is brought back. And the traditions around it are that if you have some of the straw in your purse or in your wallet, it won't be empty for the year ahead. Uh, you'll, you'll always have enough uh, uh, to, to support you. The other uh, idea was then that if anybody was sick or any animals were, were sick on the farm, uh, then some of the straw was kept to be given to them uh, as a um, as a remedy. Uh, for human beings, the straw was dipped in water and then the water was drunk. For the animals, the straw was just given them, to them to eat. Um, and uh, some of it was usually kept over the fireplace or over the door, again, as a protection against against evil. So that goes back to, to, to St. Francis. But in terms of his teachings, I think the essential teaching of St. Francis is that if God is the origin of us all, then we are all one family. And that means I am required when I come into contact with another being, be that human or non-human, to recognize in that a fundamental brotherhood or sisterhood. And so I start always from an equality rather than a, a dominance. Um, when Francis founded his order, uh, the, the proper title, the full title of the order, um, 
is is the order of friars minor which means the order of little brothers and that was what he wanted it was little brothers and little sisters who were uh, there for people in their need and your your very way of life becomes the sermon words weren't important that important to saint francis at all in fact he he recommended preachers to preach a very short word is his is his quote on it um and there's a lovely story of him at one on one occasion uh, saying to one of the brothers come let's go and preach a sermon today and they go through the whole day silent but helping people hmm. and at the end of the day the brother says we never preached and francis says our whole day was our sermon mm-hmm. um you know so i think there's there's a lot to that particularly in a world that that uh, is is soaked in people you know arguing and fighting um to simply be with people in their need is one of the most important elements I think one of the most famous, and people may see, you know, statues of uh, St. Francis holding birds and, and sure. the, the idea of the, the preaching to the birds, right? Mm. Is this viewed as something he literally did or is this more of a, a symbolic thing? 100% something he literally did. And and the, the, the strange familiar listeners are going to be delighted because the actual translation from the Italian is he preached to the crows, not just to, to the birds in general. He's obviously in these flocks of sparrows and robins and all kinds of birds around him. But he, he specifically went for the crows um, to, to preach to them. Uh, and uh, if you go to Assisi uh, and climb the mountain above Assisi to where the hermitage is, they will show you the stump of the tree on which the crows landed to hear him preach. Oh, wow. um, it's still there to this day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, w- within the stories of Francis over and over again, his ability to connect to the natural world in a very supernatural way, it w- was was uh, was manifest over and over again. Um, there's legend after legend after legend. And, and what, when I say legend, I mean uh, what we call a legenda, which means a written down story um, by the first followers of his uh, who were astounded themselves to see everything from... Uh, insects to to falcons uh, to the what we would I suppose talk about the non-material Francis would also speak to water and it would do what he wanted it to do he would speak to fire and it would do what he wanted it to do towards the end of his life he was very sick um, and was going blind Uh, and unfortunately in in the medieval understanding of medicine at the time because his eyes were weeping constantly well that was water so you fixed water by bringing the element of fire uh, and a doctor um, with a hot poker cauterized both his eyes. Um, yeah, uh, it, it didn't do anything for the blindness. But the, the the story as presented by the doctor is that, you know, he was expecting the friars to have to hold Francis down um, as they would any patient who was going to have this done. And Francis said to him, there was no need to do that as long as he got to speak to the fire first. Huh. So he spoke to the fire and said, Brother Fire, you know, I've always looked after you and I've always loved you. And... Uh, You've always been very kind and good to me. Uh, and so now in my hour of need, I, I need you to be good to me once again. And he was cauterized just sitting there uh, with, the, the, with the, the poker without any pain or without any suffering. Wow. So again, I think the contemplative mind, the meditative mind has a way of dealing with, with, uh, with reality in maybe a more unitive way than, than we are uh, used to, to, to dealing with. And I mean, we, we, you know, we know this, we've seen this. And there are so many people from all traditions who I think when their life is transformed by compassion and by kindness, animals know, children know. Yeah, you know, we, we used to say that, that if you really want to, to know the heart of someone, see how a child reacts to them, see how, a, see how an animal reacts to them. Um, and uh, 
they very often let you know very quickly and very directly whether they like someone or not. So mm-hmm. there you go. So Chad continues, and he wants to know some good things to keep in mind in dealing with the other. And uh, I'll add in my own question, or, or my own second <clears throat> to his question, I suppose, there. You know, lately I've... It's come up often in, in interviews I've done on other podcasts and stuff, and I've sort of taken to saying... Now, now I know some people are just drawn to it, and they will hear me speak about it and hear <clears throat> other people talk about it, and... And they will have to seek it out. There's going to be no stopping them. They're just they're of a curious nature. Sure. But I've I've taken to, to saying to people like if you can just enjoy the experience through others, through listening to other people's stories, or reading books, or watching documentaries, or what have you. Sure. That's certainly an easier way to go about it. And and I would oh, yeah. re- <laughs> I would recommend doing that yeah. if if you're able to do that. But at this point. It's kind of my job. <laughs> I, yeah. I kind of established it as my job. And uh, so I guess, yeah, let's maybe talk about some, some safe ways to approach it and, and some wise ways to approach it. Um, I, I think primarily the first thing I would say is don't let it call you away from your humanity. So in other words, the human things need to be the most important things in your life. Um, and that means relationships. Uh, it means family, it means your job, it means your health. And if it begins to affect any of those things, you need to take a step back and a pause. And I think it's really important to have somebody in your life you trust enough, who's grounded enough, whether that's a spouse or a partner or um, a friend or a teacher or whatever it might be, who's able to tip you on the shoulder and say, you're going there again. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to step back now. I think that that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is you need to preserve totally a sense of humor and accept going into it. You are not going to solve it. I think that's really important. It will always be far, far bigger than any of us. The most we can do is find ways of being with it, I think, that are safe. Um, And that means that calls for mutual respect. So I, I think definitely, I mean, you often talk about the, the, the rules of folklore and things like that. And they, they built up over thousands of years um, so that people would know that there are ways of being respectful and, 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 and safe. The other thing is, you know, if someone was interested in your life, would you want them, um, you know, walking into your, into your house and stomping all over your place um, and taking things that maybe belonged to you? just because they were interested in who you are. Um, so I think to accord the other, the level of respect that you would hope would be accorded to you by a stranger or by, or by anybody else. Um, ask, you know, ask for permission for things. Slow down and be reflective enough to listen for the answers. And if the answers don't come immediately, don't force things. I think it's really important for people to have Uh, a prayer or a meditative practice themselves that they are solid in um whatever whatever the tradition is that they belong to or not but just something that affords them spiritual protection and a groundedness in um making sure that they don't surrender their will I, i think that's a very important thing not to surrender will and not to surrender um, let's call it energy, shall we? Most people are, are happy enough with that as a, as a word. So if you find that you're suddenly sick 
a lot or you're um, feeling drained and tired and exhausted a lot, uh, look at yourself. You know, it may, might be that you're just overdoing things. I, I, I think we need to be very careful of not immediately going to a, a supernatural uh, explanation for everything. Sure, you know, yeah. sometimes a flu is just a flu. But I think it's important uh, to, to, to mind ourselves, our bodies, our, our, our minds, our hearts. And there are wonderful, wonderful, we talked about the angels, there are wonderful interactions with, with wonderful beings who, who desire only our good and our growth. But it's an ecosystem, as, as, as you said last time, and an ecosystem includes predators. Uh, and you need to be careful of that. So I think lots of protection. Read the folklore of old. Know um, the protective practices and prayers and blessings. Um, don't be afraid to, to, um, uh, to, to seek advice and assistance. And the other thing I'd say is to approach it with an intention that's good. And if you are walking out into in, into hopeful interaction with all of this, while being paranoid and fearful, that's what it 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 will sense and it will know that, and that's what you get back. Uh, I, I think you've got to have a very um, authentic sense of yourself before you go into uh, participation in this. Um, I'd also warn a little bit about practices that are divinatory or that are invoking spirits or things like that on simply because most people don't have the resources to deal with that kind of stuff um years ago i was asked about about uh, ouija boards for example and people were saying you know it's it, they're fantastic and they're one of the simplest ways of dealing with things and what they forget is that all of these methods are effectively us opening a door into our own consciousness and then waiting for whatever happens to be passing by at the time. If you open your hall door tomorrow and go across the street and sit and watch what happens, you might very well get a lovely good neighbor who comes to you and says, uh, do you know your hall door is open? You need to close it. But you might also, by the time you get back, have nothing left in your house. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, you, you need to, we need to be careful about these things and to, to presume that we know everything is a very, very dangerous, dangerous thing. I mean, it's often been said on your program, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, that the moment you think you know, that's the moment the world turns upside down. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's it. And also a good sense of humor and just making sure that you have other interests as well as, um, as, well as this. If it becomes obsessive, if anything becomes obsessive, it's bad for the human being. Um, and uh, this is just one of those things, too. Absolutely. I will say, as I don't know if I'm a good Catholic boy, that's that's someone else's judgment to make. But uh, the Hail Mary has served me well in <laughs> in some sure. some pretty scary situations. It's just uh, sure. that's my go-to, and it's it's very centering. And uh, I mean, there was a Chad and I do a uh, solstice walk, and we were on the top of a mountain last year. It was eight mm -hmm. degrees, and we started seeing weird lights, and started getting kind of a little bit scary and i just went right there and calmed down sure but, but your mileage may vary well, but, but for me that I, that's my sort of centering uh, almost as a as a mantra sure and and i think the the um obviously i would 100 percent approve of the hail mary but but, <laughs> but i i think it's it's really important for people to know that when whatever way we call out for help help arrives mm-hmm the, the important thing is is to call out if need be um and you know the the, the other thing is is um uh, 
you know, if if we willingly put ourselves into situations that that are um, definitively dangerous, I think we need to be sort of careful of of that too. Um, and that's why all of the traditions have their protective practices, all of them, you know. Um, so, and, and I think it's 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 very important uh, for people to realise that there is a there is a broadness. Uh, to these traditions, uh, a commonality in terms of the things that they that they offer. I saw a very interesting thing um, some days ago on online where somebody was talking about um, salt and the importance of salt in protective rituals. And somebody responded by asking, "Well, what about the different kinds of salt then? Like, uh, you know, I mean, does it need to be Himalayan salt? Does it need to be organic salt? Does it need to be purified salt or whatever?" Uh, and I was thinking of of um, one of our really, really extraordinary individuals in terms of all of this ministry of stuff. Uh, he's, he's gone to God now, but but in his years when he needed salt, he would just go to the, the kitchen and pick up the, the ordinary table salt and take that with him and off he would go. Um, because I think once we realize that it's not necessarily the virtue of the thing itself, it's the intention that opens the virtue of the thing. So then then it, it works and we don't need to get caught up in, in exact brands or anything else like that. Um, but just just to work with it gently, I think, and and to make sure that you've got people in your life who who are able to um, tip you on the shoulder and say, enough of that for a while now. You need to do ordinary things, you know. Yeah, I I would add to that. Trust your gut a little bit as well. If if, if oh it's, yeah, if it's yeah, saying yeah. leave, maybe maybe it's time to go. <laughs> well, you know, one of the most difficult things at the moment that's out there is that people are living such busy lives and such fast lives and such reactive lives that often they don't know how to listen to their gut anymore. And uh, you know, the, the mere fact of living very reactive, fast lives means we don't pick up on signals as quickly as we should. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately people only realize that the dog doesn't want them there when it bites them mm-hmm. because they never listened for the growl and the growl is there you know you, you'll you'll pick it up very very quickly if you're if you're aware enough um and so i think where people get very caught up in all of the technology around these kind of things rather than actually just sitting being still being aware uh, opening their minds uh, to 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 what's around them noticing the acoustic signals the the smell signals the gut signals that are there they'll often guide you far far better than than um a lot of the the technology that's out there now for all of this absolutely all right so let's uh move on to steve's list of questions for us or or uh oh yes yeah, yeah. choice and i don't <laughs> i don't know if some of these seem like they're meant for me some you know, who knows but we'll just go through them here Okay. He says, uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch? So, <laughs> Oh, I'll go Sasquatch. Okay. Yeah. I, for me, it's Bigfoot. Just, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's a very, uh, I guess it comes from pop culture, but, uh, sure. it's, you know, whatever. It's very common, very easy term. Krampus or St. Nick? Well, now I'm going to have to go St. Nicholas, am I? I will too. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I appreciate the Krampus stories, but he doesn't seem like a, like a real fun guy. <laughs> uh residual or active i guess he means hauntings with that i'm not sure you know i'll take either one well, I guess. I, I, i'll go active active is much easier to deal with than residual oh is it because mm. you, you can have a conversation uh, can you expand on that a little bit well i, I if, if it's active and there's a real presence mm-hmm. um then it's possible to actually get information and have a conversation 
residual is often just um, a mess of cross emotions and emo emotional states um, that has all kinds of lesser little entities then jumping on and being part of it. Oh. Um, so you end up with a kind of a, it's the difference between um, dealing with uh, a, a sort of a, a face-to-face -face conversation rather than a crossed telephone line where you're trying to find out exactly what voice is speaking when. Very, very interesting. I hadn't even thought about it. Okay, next, Lily Munster or <laughs> Morticia Adams. <laughs> <laughs> I always love the Adams uh, family cartoons, so I'll go with I'll go with the Adams. Yeah, yeah. Mor Morticia was as a as a very very young boy. She was my first crush, so I have to go with uh, Morticia. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Ouija or scrying? Uh, I think you just uh, laid down some warnings that I would probably equal to both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only form of of scrying that I think has any kind of merit from a meditative point of view would be the kind of psychomantium, um, uh, which because it's it's a kind of a more passive uh, experience of just simply sitting and gazing. But again, a lot of the contemplative teachers would say that that you know the 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 idea of having to use tools or apparatus is always dangerous. You're better to to try and work with the internal mirror of the soul if possible. Poltergeist or demon? I don't know who would choose demon, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would I would choose poltergeist, definitely. Yeah. 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 Much easier to deal with, yeah. 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 Nightmare Before Christmas or A Christmas Carol? I'll go with A Christmas Carol on that one. Oh, okay. I'd go with A Christmas Carol as well, I think. Though I love I love both. Yeah, yeah. Wasal or Eggnog? Uh, neither. I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we go with a non-alcoholic eggnog. There you go. Fairies or greys? I'm not sure there's a difference anymore. But <laughs> yeah, I think they're one and the same. To be honest, that's a both and. That's that's a that's a, a, a like the the Tibetan abbot's abbot's response. It's it, it's. I think it's yes. I think they might. There's certainly very very close ties and relations. But if I had to meet one on the street and deal with it, I would prefer to deal with one that was appearing as a fairy rather than as a grey. I think I'd agree, although my, my last uh, encounter, with, I, I don't know if you heard me talk about where they were I did, yeah, like, I did, yeah. dressed in weird feathers and dancing around. That that was almost amusing, uh, you know, yeah, that, that I'll take. But uh, as far as previous ones, I'd, I'd take anything but. I, I was not very yeah. fond of this. Sleep paralysis or out of body? Um, I... I did not like sleep paralysis when I had it, so... I'll, I'll no, out of body, I would agree yeah. completely. Day hike or night hike? Uh, I'll take a day night hike. Night hike for me. I'm sorry, your answer? I go night hike, yeah. Really? I spent many, many beautiful nights yeah, out in the forests and, and woods at night, yeah. yeah. I go with day only because my first symptom, I guess I, I had MS before. Sure. But my first symptom of MS, I went blind in my left eye. And oh. very quickly, I got a pain around my eye, and then within days, mm. I could only see light and dark. And, and thankfully, um, I, I had treatment steroids, and I got 90% or more of my vision back, so okay. it, it ended up being fine. But one of the lasting um, effects of that is I, I have uh, trouble with contrast at night, so oh, okay. it's, it's very okay. difficult for me to see on night hikes. And uh, it makes them. I like to see things. <laughs> so, sure, sure. So it yeah. makes them uh, less uh, uh, fun for me than they were. Loot or bagpipes? 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll be a Celt and I'll go bagpipes, definitely. Yeah. I love anything with a reedy drone like that, uh, mm. bagpipes or, or harmoniums or uh, sure. anything like that. I absolutely love them. Solstice mm. or Equinox? Oh. Um, Equinox is more powerful than the Solstices, believe it or not. But I'd, I'd, from the significance of them, I would go Solstice. I do enjoy especially winter solstice i I just absolutely mm. love it it's just absolutely one of my favorite times of the year now i don't even know if you re- re- remind remind me at the end to tell you tell you something about the solstice go, go on anyway sorry okay uh i don't even know if you the, the pennsylvania dutch pot pie or real pot pie with an actual crust so let me explain uh, okay <laughs> I, I grew up in maryland just you know 20 miles away yeah. from where we are now and uh pot pie was different pot pie had a crust on it and I, okay. I come to Pennsylvania, and somebody says, well, do you want pot pie for dinner? I say, oh, sure, I love pot pie. And they give me a bowl of noodles. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's a, it's it's it actually comes from what? Is it bot boy? Is that the, the, yeah, the Pennsylvania it's Dutch? Pennsylvania, it's a German. Yeah. I don't know that you would have ever experienced the difference, but uh, I, I actually prefer, having grown up with pot pie with a crust, I actually prefer the, the noodle pot pie. But I don't know if you have any, any uh, do they have a pot I, pie I, in, in, in Ireland? Well, we, 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 we certainly have pies and things like that, but I, I think I, I wouldn't have the, um, the, the technical knowledge to answer, answer correctly <laughs> there. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if it's, if it's got pastry, I'm happy. So <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I'll deal with pastry. <laughs> uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering? <laughs> oh, Dungeons and Dragons all the way. Though, uh, answering it that way, my, my youngest brother is also a listener to your podcast. And he is um, he's very involved in uh, the comic business. He has a, a comic and sci-fi shop. So he's he Magic the Gathering, I think, has has made a lot of money for him over the years in terms of selling all the cards and things like that. But I'm I'm a 70s 80s kid, so I'm, I'm definitely Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that's I I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. My mother was, <laughs> loved Dungeons and Dragons because she said I had this vast jump in my vocabulary so shortly after starting playing uh, that. So she, <laughs> that's, she yeah, it's educated. It's educated a lot of people <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and then uh, last is eBay or Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Etsy. Etsy definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Etsy's been uh, good to me this year, so I'll go with Etsy as well. All right, so uh, your solstice story. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, many years ago, I was contacted by a family who um, they're, they're, they're in what we would call an Irish ascendancy family. So they would have been um, descended from Protestant landowners who, who came in during the, the kind of plantation and uh, put down roots in, in Ireland. Uh, so very, very wealthy family, very well connected politically, all of that kind of stuff. So it was very unusual that they'd be in touch with any of us. But anyway, this gentleman was passed on to me because his uh, he was expecting his first child to be to be born. Um, and uh, he was very worried because he was convinced that there was a curse on the family um, that affected firstborn children in uh, down the generations. Uh, so I asked him why and where was this story coming from, etc. And he said, well, it was because his great-grandfather had worked for the colonial service in Africa uh, for the British government in the days when they owned as much of the the world as they did. And uh, this gentleman had had a run-in with uh, 
uh, a chief of a particular tribe in Nigeria uh, where he was working at the time. Nigeria or Kenya? I can't remember. It was either Nigeria or Kenya. And this had escalated and escalated to the point where the man had um, broken into uh, one of their sacred enclosures and had stolen two of their um, images of their of their deities and um, was using basically holding them to ransom to try and get the, the, the chief to agree to his, his terms of, of some particular piece of land management. Anyway, a couple of nights later, uh, the man woke up to discover that his house was now um, surrounded by a group of men who were chanting and singing and drumming and all of that kind of stuff. And he was told afterwards that his family had been had been cursed until the deities would be re- would be returned. So he poo pooed the whole thing and refused to return them. And when he left Africa to return to, to Ireland, he took the deities with him, uh, the, the two statues with him. From the moment they arrived in Ireland, the family had terribly, just terrible misfortune after misfortune, bad luck. And whenever a son was was born to the family, uh, the son was born sick. Not conditions that that, that severely limited their health, but just very sick. Um, So anyway, that had come down the generations to this particular man now. So my question was, uh, the minute I heard it was, well, where where are these statues? And uh, he said, well, we still have them. They're in the house. And I said, have you ever tried to return them? Um, So he said, no. And I said, well, you're going to have to return them. So he said, well, uh, you know, is there anything we can do before we return them? Because this kid is going to be born any day now. So I said, "Okay, well, if you bring the statues into us, we'll we'll see what happens. So it was round about the the, the solstice um, at the time. So I was very aware of this and saying, gosh, we're really, really all these conditions are, are kind of coming together. So uh, he had, I'd only spoken to him by, by, by phone at that stage. So he arranged to come to the, to the friary where I was living and to bring the two statues with him. And uh, the friary was kind of hard to find. So I was standing out on the, 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 the road to be able to direct him in. And while I was standing there, uh, completely empty street, I heard two voices behind me. And they said, hello, both at the same time. And I turned around and there were two African children standing behind me. And I said, hello. And I was totally surprised, didn't know where they'd come from. And they said, um, we're lost. And I said, OK. I said, where do you need to go? And they said, we're trying to find the place where we can sing. So I said, OK. Now, they were dressed in ordinary, modern, Western clothes. You know, mm-hmm. there was uh, it was a beautiful, bright day. There was, you know, traffic going up and down. And I was standing with these two kids. So I said to them, uh, Look, we, we, I can try and find you a place, but, you know, there's. I was talking about various churches and choirs and I was telling them about, you know, the, the, the centre. And All the while, they just stayed very silent, just looking at me. And, they, and at the end, they said, we're still trying to find the place to sing. So at that moment, I heard a car beep its horn and I turned around and there was the gentleman arriving in. And I turned back to where the two kids were and they were gone. So at that stage, I said, OK, we're dealing with real stuff here now. This isn't just his imagination or the family story or whatever there's there's real things that have happened here so i went in and he took he arrived at this two-seater sports car with the two statues sitting in the other seat i'll always remember anyway and brought in the two statues and the minute he brought them into the the the, the friary i i knew immediately that the presences were still with with us they were still with these these two statues so we began the prayer of blessing and prayer and ritual and I invited 
the presence of the ancestors of this tribe to be present. And the room was palpably filled. And we had two very ancient elderly African men just appear. They were there, present in the room. Now, the gentleman who brought them in didn't see them, but he felt that they were there. Uh, I saw them, the two of them turned up. So I greeted them and they greeted me and they said, the first thing they said to me is, where are we? So I said, you're in a monastery in Ireland. And they said, we need to go home. And I said, yes. And I said, this gentleman gave his name. I said, he's about to make a promise to send you home. And he looked at me all wide-eyed and open-mouthed because he knew what was happening. So I turned around to him and I said, you have to apologize on behalf of your family and you have to promise you will send these the, these statues back home. So he um, made the promise and apologized and was overcome with a huge wave of emotion, was absolutely sobbing. And the two presences thanked him and uh, basically just faded out. And we were left with the two statues and him. And I had to get him a very, very strong cup of coffee at that point uh, to try and, and put him back on his feet and restore him. So I said to him, you've, you've made a promise. You have to fulfill this promise. That it'll be far worse for you if you don't fulfill this promise now. So about two days later, I got a phone call from him to say that he had gone to the embassy of the particular country and had walked in with these two statues and had said to whoever was at the reception, gave a potted version of the story, did not say he had seen presences or anything else, but Mm -hmm. said they had to be returned. And, you know, the family were aware that these had been stolen and that they needed to go back. So he was asked to wait. And a little while later, a gentleman appeared on the staff of the the embassy who was actually uh, a member of this particular tribe and thanked him profusely and said, do you know what they are? And he said, no. He said, these are the images of the guardian spirits of our tribe. Um, and he said, he said, they're very, very powerful and very strong. And he asked him, has, has, you know, has your family been okay? Um, and he said, well, no, we've had issues and all the rest of it. And he said, well, it ends today. And he took them back in. And that was the last he ever saw of them. Wow. Uh, child was born and child was born fine. Um, but ever since, whenever the, the solstice has come around, I've always remembered uh, those, those two um, little children turning up looking for a place to sing. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and, Chilling. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking. And now they were very peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was no feeling of animosity or anything. But I was being very clearly told, I think, um, that what you're about to deal with is real and to deal with it in a real way. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah. So whenever solstices come around, I'm always aware of it. Because in, in the Celtic tradition, it was believed, um, the Celtic Christian tradition, it was believed that the solstice uh, was an echo of what they call the five great moments of stillness. So they said that the universe became still five times throughout its history. The first was the moment of creation itself, when the stars had to be asked to move for the first time. The second time was the moment just before um, Adam and Eve fell, that all of creation paused to see what were they going to do? Would they give in to the temptation or would they resist it? And the third moment was the moment of... Uh, the, the moment when uh, the angel Gabriel asks Mary, will she be the mother of, of Christ? The whole of creation stops and pauses at that moment. But the last moment, which comes back to our Christmas, uh, the fourth moment, I should say, the fifth moment is the very end of all time. But the fourth moment in between is the moment when at the nativity scene, the way the Celtic 
uh, Christians told the story was that when it came for the moment for Jesus to be born, the midwife, uh, Joseph is looking for a midwife and he finds this woman on the street and she says, yes, I'm, I'm a midwife and she comes in. And the first thing she does being a good midwife of that time is she throws him out um says no this is women's place and women's place only and he goes out and uh, goes to the inn to try and get food and drink and things like that and when he comes out of the inn he notices that the whole of bethlehem is completely still uh, that the birds flying in the sky have stopped dead that the, the 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 snow or the rain that's falling is you know frozen in time and it's just for one moment and at the end of that moment he hears a child cry and he realizes the child has been born and then everything goes back to movement again. And the teaching behind it was that the Christ or the, you know, the, our consciousness of the divine is born out of stillness. Um, and our awareness of the spiritual world is born out of stillness. And when he goes back, he discovers that the midwife has disappeared. And he asks Mary who the midwife was. And she said, surely you recognized her. And he says, no, I have no idea who she is. And it turns out that the midwife is Eve, who has been brought through time. Uh, to witness the fulfillment of the promise made to her all those millennia ago right. that humanity would be healed um, by another woman. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful telling and it's within that Celtic understanding of story and eternity and time and stillness and all of those things. But it always echoes for me that experience as well, that through place and time, um, these presences were still present and were still reaching out for help. Um, and for and for assistance uh, that the ancestors are always present with us so wow. as we move into into a christmas experience i'd i'd, I'd really uh, hope that all of the people out there the strange familiar listeners etc whatever else happens that they get a moment of stillness in the midst of it all that is a wonderful story i, I hate to I, I almost i just have to ask a couple questions i, I of course uh, of course feel free I, yeah. I'm, I'm still the host of strange familiars as, as much as <laughs> part of me says just let that go and let that be the end of the episode and, and no and no, say, no 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 say merry christmas but the, the the host of strange familiars <laughs> has to say so the, these children appeared as just natural real children they were they yeah you know. about, about maybe eight to ten years mm -hmm. of age the only thing was i didn't see them arrive along a straight street and i didn't see them go mm-hmm and the ancestors that appeared, you know, when you when mm. doing the prayers, did they appear in modern garb or, or some sort of? No, no, they were in, um, I suppose, what you'd call kind of traditional clothing, you know, colorful African, African kind of uh, robes, I suppose. Yeah, that, um, that kind of idea. Yeah. Wow. That but again, again, just because they were appearing as that to me means they may have just used whatever was in my imagination or sure. mind as what they would look like you yeah know? yeah yeah oh that's just absolutely a wonderful story and uh, again this note of sort of um cross-cultural participation in the other yeah. you know and and, <laughs> and that idea that what is good is good as as you said at the start of all yeah this. yeah sure absolutely no i mean the the this was the um the experience of of that family was, you know, uh, um, a very negative experience. Right. But actually, what they were dealing with was a very positive, um, you know, very positive objects. You know, they were about protection. They were about peace. They were about connection with the ancestors. So, because they had transgressed against that, against that balance, uh, you know, they had they had run into difficulty. And again, it speaks to your earlier con uh, question around, you know things I should know when dealing with the other, which is, you know, I think we need to be very careful of just because we're in a particular cultural mindset 
or we follow a particular set of beliefs or whatever, um, that when we walk into somebody else's space, whoever they are, we're, we're walking on you know holy ground as such, and we need to be very careful. Absolutely. Brother Richard, thank you so much. Thank you for coming you're back. You're most welcome. Yourself. Thank but, you, and thank you for, for all that you're doing. I, I think that the, the, the podcast and the community around it, and you know, occasionally I dip in and out of the Discord and the, and the group and things like that and on Facebook, and uh, it, it's, it's marvelous to see um, people from all traditions and all spaces, not just sharing stories, but you know, working with all of this in, yeah. in the sense of, of, of understanding. And, and there's been some marvelous insights and i mean i I, i've i've grown in my appreciation of of different elements in different ways listening to you listening to the podcast and listening to to uh to the the other the other people who who contribute as well so thank you for the work i'm very happy and impressed with the there seems to be a you know maybe at some point it'll be a problem but there has not been a problem with people just being respectful and kind yeah. to each other. Yeah, and, and that's very, yeah. very important to me. It, you know, if, if I'm going to have a Discord, if I'm going to have this, the Facebook group, that's, mm. you know, the main thing I want. Just I want people to be kind to each other and be respectful. And we might not all believe the same thing, but that doesn't mean we can't be, again, just kind and respectful to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the more circles in, in life we have where we meet different thinkers and different people, uh, and and in in a way that's open and listening is that you know that that's that's what's <laughs> that's what's going to improve this world more than anything else. I'm going to let Allison step in and ask a well, question. I was just thinking <laughs> about um, a certain specialness about people who die during like uh, what was it during the the days between Christmas and yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah yeah. Is there a, an equivalent for people who are born during that time? Yes, yeah, yeah, very much so. It was considered a very special blessing and that they would probably have qualities that would keep them linked to the other side very easily. Ah, yeah. like our kids. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's, it, it was always considered a very, uh, a, a kind of a thin, a thin place. So people who were born or, or passed away in that place, you know, would have qualities that would kind of um, keep them present to both sides. Wonderful. Well, once again, thank you, Brother Richard, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. And yeah, Merry Christmas to you and to Allison and to and to the the, the family there. Absolutely. Keep us all in in your prayers, and uh, we will as well. Likewise. And thank you, thank you so much, and and uh, I look forward to to strange familiars every week. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Flowered Path. You can always find more information at thefloweredpath.com. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash thefloweredpath. On Instagram, we're at thefloweredpath. And search for us on YouTube. Please subscribe to our channel there as well. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder, there will be more Brother Richard on Strange Familiars this coming week.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.